particular places can preserve a lot of memory, a lot of history. Standing here in Hampton Hall right now, I know that is true about this particular place for me and for so many of us here at St. George's Church. An early memory for me in this room is from the first part of the year 2007, and your vestry leadership was gathered on a Saturday morning uh, with the consultant as we began work on crafting a strategic plan for St. George's Church. And one of our very first exercises was to um, have a timeline. It was on the wall back over here over my right shoulder, um, going all the way back to the very first service in this space in September of 1949, and a timeline all the way up to the present at that time, 2007. And we were asked to go and uh, make notations on that timeline of significant events in the life of the church. And of course, those who had been here a lot longer than I had participated in the exercise, but one of the striking um, things about our doing that was we finished the exercise uh, in a lot less time than we had allotted because the room, the vestry, our leadership was actually much more interested in looking to the future than looking behind us, even as we wanted a continuous witness with our past moving out into the future. And so in that morning, we had conversation about, you know, what is it that we that we most want and yearn for? What is it that we think God wants for us? And we landed on the very verse that you heard at the end of the second reading, the gospel text from John chapter 10. Jesus says, I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. And we said, that's it. And we even talked it through and various images emerged for us about what abundant life in Christ would look like. And we I remember vividly this image of a chalice overflowing with communion wine. And it was that morning that led to the creation of our purpose statement that carries us forward to this day to receive, live, and share the abundant life of Jesus Christ. Abundant life. A few years later in this very room, uh, a Sunday in early May just like this one, May the 2nd, 2010. You know, yesterday was the 10th anniversary of the Nashville flood. And on that morning, about 25 or 30 of us had managed to get here through driving rain for the 7:30 service. And we had just finished the Lord's Prayer um, at the Great Thanksgiving, and water started coming into the church. And we scrambled off of our knees and we actually ran into this room. Uh, to finish the distribution of communion before we started racing around the building and trying to remove all the furnishings out of the rising water. And I remember we, we stood on, I think it might have been this very stage, over in that corner because the kindergarten was in the midst of putting on its annual spring drama, ironically, Noah's Ark. Several other members of the church, sensing the emergency, were able to get here that morning I remember that Larry Tribune was worried about my uh, black shoes covered up in about 18 inches of water and loaned me a pair of his old running shoes that he had in the back of his car. Of course, there was tragedy that we didn't know of at that moment. But the next day, we lost two beloved parishioners, Frankie and Bill Rutledge. And an enduring memory of that day in this room is that Later in the afternoon, 
things were beginning to calm down a little bit with the waters. But I walked down the hall and I looked in this room and there was a solitary figure in here. Beloved friend and devoted member of this church, Govan White, who had managed to get here to the church and who was squeegeeing the water off of this parquet floor. This room has a lot of history, a lot of memory. And in the days that followed the flood, we, we actually contemplated together how we felt less institutional and more like a family. And in spite of the tragedy, I think we recognized that was a good thing. So look, there are multiple things going on right now in our personal lives, in our church life, needless to say, in our cultural life. There is this yearning uh, to experience, again, continuity with our past, which is a way of saying, can we please get back to doing the things that we've always done here at St. George's, namely worship. There's also this yearning I think we all have in a new way to feel less institutional and more like family in contemplation of what that could look like in new and more powerful ways. We are still complying, obviously, with the social distancing guidelines, and it's impossible to satisfy those yearnings right now entirely. So the, the questions in the meantime are these. Where do these yearnings come from, and how can we learn and grow from these yearnings in the meantime when they're not yet being satisfied? Among my favorite passages in the Bible that always cause me to feel yearning is the one we read earlier uh, from the book of Acts. It's a brief description of that very first generation of Christians living in Jerusalem right after the resurrection and ascension of Jesus, right after the gift of the Holy Spirit they had received at Pentecost. So one of my questions for all of us right now is, despite the circumstances that we wish to God had never happened. This, this season is offering us a fresh lesson in how to be church, how to be church when we cannot come to the church. And that itself implies something of how we understand what church actually is. The book of Acts is essentially a bunch of stories about how those first Christians understood what it was to be church before there were any institutional churches to go to in the first place. It would be many years before that happened. I wonder if it's true that many Episcopalians actually have little familiarity with the book of Acts. It's filled with these strange stories of the Holy Spirit and miracles and conversions and intentional evangelism, not necessarily things that Episcopalians are known for as our strong suits. So reading the book of Acts can arouse a sense of discontinuity with our own notions of church, especially, again, as it's filled with all of those things I mentioned, but also as it's filled with stories about intense community belonging, belonging that seems different from our own experiences of church as an established institution. So we pick up the story today in Acts. Again, it's just after the Holy Spirit has come at Pentecost. And I think of this, um, this episode as a kind of a segue at the end of chapter 2, a brief 
glimpse of that first generation of Christians in Jerusalem right before the intentional outward thrust of the gospel into all the world. And I've spoken and I've taught and I've preached on this text so often through the years. I I hope that you will have ears to listen to me once again. So what do we see? What do we hear in this text today? I want to highlight three uh, main aspects to the story that cannot be missed. And the first is just the utter devotion of those first Christians in their worship life. They're described as being filled with gratitude, constantly praising God, constantly coming together to do so, both in their homes and at the temple. Worship. Secondly, this, this aspect of intense belonging. One of the things that's most impressive to me about those verses is that they met together frequently, daily, and no one had any need. If they saw a member of the congregation who had a need, they addressed it. They did whatever they had to do to make sure that they were taken care of. And then thirdly, sort of their outward witness. They had the goodwill of all of those who were around them, yet not inside the church. And I hear this text, and I just say to myself over and over again, wow, I want to be a part of a church that looks like that. No matter how many times I hear it. But the question is, why do I yearn for that vision of church life? Why do I yearn for it so much? Why is it so compelling? Is it simply a yearning to live amongst more Christian believers? Well, I think I already do. You believe. I think rather it is a desire to be more and more a part of a church community with this sort of priority on living together in the gospel that we already believe. In other words, belonging even more than believing. So there is this repeated emphasis as you read through the book of Acts on the actual lived life of the community together in the gospel all the time. We might read these texts and say, well, I don't even know if that's practical in our day and age, given where we live relative to each other and our jobs and all of our other obligations, but we should ask anyway. Our times, I think, are so deeply shaped by this notion that faith is largely a private matter, personal matter involving our assent to certain religious beliefs. I don't even think we realize it. Back in, uh, I think it was in the 80s, when Woody Allen was the Woody Allen that we all grew up knowing and loving, uh, he made a film called Hannah and Her Sisters. Some of you who are, I guess, of my generation or older will remember this film if you saw it. It's a great movie. And in the movie, Allen plays... um, pretty much the familiar figure that he plays in so many of his movies. He's the neurotic, guilt-ridden, emotionally starved man. There's a section in the movie when Alan decides in his search for meaning, in the midst of his existential crisis, he's going to check out Christianity. And so there's a scene, he goes to a a priest or pastor, has a conversation about what it is to be a Christian. In the next scene, you, you see Alan stumbling out on the street with his arms loaded down with a bunch of theological books. There's no no sense in the movie. There's no idea at all that becoming a Christian would, first of all, mean becoming a part of a community. It is, in the movie, rather a solitary pursuit of intellectual precepts. But the good news is that the gospel is a person 
before the gospel. It's precepts. The good news is the gospel is translated in relationships more than books and private thoughts and feelings. That is to say, in community. And I suppose it's kind of a cruel joke for us right now that we are wrestling with one of the great passages in all of Scripture on Christian belonging and community on this very day when we cannot experience it even if we wanted to, even if we tried. You know, I'm at the point of never wanting to hear the phrase social distancing for the rest of my entire life. I'm sick of it. I'm over it. But here we are. We are at the point where the ancient Israelites were in their long wilderness wanderings, being told that the promised land is close. It's getting closer and closer, but not seeing it yet. And our hungers grow. And I like to think that part of our strength as St. George's, part of our strength as a parish that despite our size and complexity, our corporate nature, our relative diversity, we are not an issues-driven church. We are a gospel-driven church. And the key to every gospel-driven Christian community is to nurture a life such that every member, every member, whatever personal issues we deal with and carry, every member feels a part of something far greater than themselves. To belong to something greater than yourself is what we all really yearn for. And it is hard to feel that you belong to something greater than yourself when you are socially isolated. So we accept this situation. We do. We have been. And we pray that it will be over soon. As much as I love this passage from Acts chapter 2 today, it also tends to convict me because there is not a single hint in this passage of self-concern, of selfish desire about how the church should operate. And so in this unprecedented time for us, when we cannot come to church, we ask the Lord fresh questions about how to be church. And maybe right now for a lot of us, that means asking simply how to help St. George's be church more and more when we actually are able to come back to the church itself, the church property. The good news is that Jesus Christ lives. He is risen. He has ensured also that we have the power of the Holy Spirit to continue to know that he is alive, to continue to live that promise with each other, and to do such in a way that the world around us, beginning with our neighbors but extending outward to our entire city of Nashville, sees us and sees how blessed we are in some kind of abundant life, maybe ill-formed in their own hearts, but desirous day by day. Day by day, the Lord added to their number. And none of what I just said there is thwarted by coronavirus, not one bit of it. To know that you are taken up into the life and love of the risen Christ, to trust that you are so intensely loved now and forever is freedom. It is freedom. 
It is freedom from anything and everything that would seek to separate you from the love of God and from anyone else. In fact, we call that freedom the abundant life of Jesus Christ. In this church, whether we are gathering as normal, whether we are together as community as we've been in the past, or whether we are looking forward to the future, we are a visible sign, a visible sign of God's glory. This season, unwanted though it is, offers an important time for all of us to pause and experience deep reflection on any and every way that we might think of allowing God to reorder all our relationships, beginning with our relationship to God in Christ, our relationship to one another at St. George's, and our relationships to our neighbors and our city. After all, our life together is the criterion the world will use to judge whether or not we actually do know what abundant life is or not. And I cannot think of a higher calling than that.